If you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 26 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 911. And we're actually continuing what we looked at last week. This is the second sermon, uh, what we're looking at, that, uh, the sermon given by Peter that we started out looking at last week. And this sermon, like the first sermon that Peter gave during Pentecost, it was a response. It was a response to and, and an explanation of a mighty miracle that God had done. At Pentecost, the disciples were speaking in these unknown tongues, and this unknown tongues got the attention of the people, of the crowds, and they were amazed. They wanted to know what it meant. Well, the second sermon is in response to, and it's an explanation of, Peter and John's healing of the crippled man at the temple. And this healing then got people's attention. They wanted to know what it meant. And both of these miracles, they gave Peter an opportunity to give a witness for Jesus. And both sermons serve for us as a, a model for how we can also be a witness for Jesus in the area where he's placed us. So last week we looked at the first half of this response. Today we're going to look at the second half of this response. So Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like, like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who spoke from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this Reformation tradition. Lord, we thank you for the principles that were rediscovered over 500 years ago. And Lord, we pray as we go through this passage, Lord, that you will speak to us. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to open our ears to hear from you. I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to speak through me. And Lord, we pray that we will have a supernatural encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, that each one of us will leave here changed. If there are any here who do not know you, that will change today. And those of us who do know you, we will be conformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been looking for the last couple of weeks, these sermons have been about witnessing. Witnessing to Jesus. And one of the most difficult things for us witnessing about Jesus here in our Jerusalem, that is the American South, that is the Bible Belt, is that nearly everyone that we witness to already thinks... They're a Christian. See, civil religion, cultural Christianity is still very strong here in the Bible Belt, especially when it's compared to other places in the country and other places in the world that are clearly post-Christian, and many of them are even anti-Christian. Now, the civic religion of the Bible Belt, this is both good and bad. 
It's good in the sense that the church, we face less open hostility as it does in other areas of the country and other areas of the world. It's also good that here in the Bible Belt, the culture is, for the most part, still generally influenced by and affirms biblical values and standards of morality, although even that is, is rapidly changing, even here in the Bible Belt. But it's also a negative. It's a negative in the fact that many people confuse this outward civil religion, they confuse this cultural Christianity for the supernatural regeneration that is wholly the work of God and is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures alone. In short, people think because they live in the South, because they, they own a gun or they vote Republican or at one time in their life they responded to an altar call, they've been baptized, they may even go to church. They think all this makes them a Christian, regardless of any change, any conversion. And thus what happens is, is they are hardened. They are hardened to the gospel. Their exposure to cultural Christianity has inoculated. Just like when we get a vaccine, it's inoculated them to the true gospel. My friends, this is our Jerusalem, here in the Bible Belt. Here we are to witness for Christ. Here we are to be ambassadors for Christ in a culture that for the most part already thinks they know him. And this is a similar situation that Peter and John find themselves in. They're in the temple in Jerusalem. This is a place where, where God meets with his people. This was the most holy place in the world for God's old covenant people. And the people Peter is speaking to, they are devout worshipers of the true God. As we saw in verse 13, of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But they don't know Jesus. They don't have Jesus. Even more than that, they were actually opposed to Jesus. And Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is the focal point. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in Jesus. All the sacrifices, all the rituals, all that they claim to follow are fulfilled in Jesus. Opposition to Jesus is opposition to the God they claim to serve. And Peter acknowledges that they were actually acting in ignorance. They had not intentionally, they weren't intentionally on opposition for God. They thought they were serving him. They were very similar to Saul of Tarsus, which we'll see in a few chapters. The Apostle Paul. He was zealously persecuting Christians, and he thought he was doing God's will. Paul would later write in 1 Timothy that he had acted ignorantly. So Peter and John's challenge here is similar to our challenge. They were witnessing to those who thought they were serving God, but in their ignorance were actually rejecting him. Well, here in the Bible Belt, we are witnessing to those who think they know Christ, think they are serving Christ, think they know the gospel, but in their ignorance are actually rejecting the biblical Christ, rejecting the gospel of grace. And Peter uses scripture, uses scripture to confront this ignorance, to confront this faulty thinking of the men of Israel that he's addressing. And this is what we too are called to do when we confront the ignorance that we find here in Bible Belt cultural Christianity. So the errors that Peter addresses here in the sermon are the same errors that we too must address when we are witnessing to those who, who simply have this cultural Christianity, this Bible Belt Christianity, but are not regenerate, are not new creations in Christ. So let's dive in. Let's look at these errors. The first error we see is we must confront, that we must confront is that Christianity is not a religion of glory. Christianity is not a religion of glory. And we see this in verse 18. It says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And we've discussed this many times in, in sermons, 
The prevailing view among God's people in the first century, even among God's, uh, Jesus' own disciples, was that the Messiah would come in as a conquering hero. He would be a liberator. He would cast out the Romans. He would make Israel great. He would restore them. And the people believed when he came that he would usher in this, this time of glory, this time of prosperity for his people. This was the expectation. The idea of a suffering servant would have been utterly offensive to the first century Jewish mindset. They, they couldn't even understand it. But Scripture says otherwise. Our Old Testament reading that we just heard a few moments ago from Isaiah 53, it gives us the, the clearest account of the Messiah as a suffering servant. And he wasn't suffering for himself. No, he was perfect. Rather, he was suffering as a substitute for his people. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. My friends, this is the heart of the gospel. Substitutionary atonement. Christ suffered the penalty that our sins deserved. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God was both just, that is, that he, he punishes sin, but he was also the justifier. He punishes the sin, not in the sinner, but in Christ. See, the prevailing view of the conquering Messiah, this wasn't completely wrong, no. It was just premature. Christ will one day return as king, king of kings and lord of lords, and he will execute judgment on those rebelling against him. However, if he came first as a righteous judge and not as a suffering servant, what would he have found? What would he have found? He would have only found rebels. We would all face his wrath. But praise God that he didn't come first to judge. He came first to save so that we would not face that judgment. And here's the point. Here's the point where our modern Bible Belt Christianity needs to be confronted. See, if Christ came not to be served but to serve, if he came not as a conquering king but as a suffering servant, if he came not to reign but he came to the cross, why should we, his followers, why should we expect anything different for us? Jesus said in John 15, he says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. So the reality is for Christians, now is not the time of glory. Now is the time of cross. Glory will come, but it is not now. Now is a time of trial and suffering. But cultural Christianity, cultural Christianity thinks now is the time of glory. We see this in, in the popularity of the health and wealth gospel that promises the Christian will never get sick, will have everything they want financially, will have great relationships, will have their best life now. But this is not biblical Christianity. It calls us to die to ourselves, to live for Christ, to pick up our crosses and follow him. See, for the cultural Christian, religion is simply what, what, what respectable people do. Church is a place to make business contacts. There's no personal devotion to Jesus. There's no desire to know him better. There's no desire to, there's no hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's no hunger and thirst for, for Christ's likeness. There's no desire to kill our sins. It's simply what's in it for me. What's in it for me? It's seen as, as, a, as a, a means for a comfortable and a prosperous life. There's really no thought. There's no concern for eternity. It's all about what I can get right now in this world. And isn't it any wonder that the, the glory gospel sells? 
in this fallen world? Is it any wonder the biggest churches in the world peddle entertainment and promises of worldly happiness and through temporal prosperity rather than the eternal joy that comes through daily killing our, our sins and, and growing in holiness, daily becoming more like Jesus? And our witness must confront this theology of glory of the cultural Christian. We must be wary of cultural warriors that give lip service to biblical values as a means of power. We must, uh, we must not be fooled by unbelieving politicians who will use biblical values simply to dupe Christians to get elected. We must recognize that it's an evil. It's an evil, it's a blasphemy against God to use his words and, and not jump on the bandwagon on this. But sadly, sadly, the cultural Christian is measured more by their views about politics than they are about their relationship with Jesus Christ. And yes, as Christians, we are to uphold biblical morality. We are to oppose a godless culture that rebels against God. But God is never, never to be used as a means to an end. We don't use Christianity to renew the culture. We seek to renew the culture in order to bring people to Christ, in order to glorify God. The cultural Christian uses God in order to get power. The truly regenerate Christian uses whatever power or lack of power they have in order to bring God glory. And my friends, this is as different as heaven and hell. So this is the first error we must confront. The second error we must confront is the lie that we do not need to be obedient to God. And we see this in verse 22. <clears throat> Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Well, this verse here is a, is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And this is where Moses tells of a greater prophet that will come after him. And this greater prophet that comes after him is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not simply enough to believe in Jesus. It's not enough to, to, to say a prayer and invite him into our heart. We must also obey Jesus. We must obey his teaching, all of his teaching. In other words, we must obey the teaching of Scripture. Now, people say, wait, hold on a second. I don't need to obey the Bible. I'm saved by Jesus. I'm not under the law. That's legalism. You're denying the gospel of grace. Well, it's true that as Christians, we are not under the law. We are not saved by our obedience to the law. But Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. By Jesus' atonement, we are, we are set free from the penalty of our failure to keep the law. Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve. This is all of grace, no doubt about it. But we are saved not to ignore the law. We are saved in order that we may fulfill the law, the moral law of God. See, when we're united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are then set free from the bondage to sin. We are new creations. We are given the power to obey God, God's moral law. Now, of course, it's not perfectly, but this power is real nonetheless. And as we grow in sanctification, we are given the grace to be able to be more and more to keep God's law, to more and more die to our sin and to live for Christ. But the cultural Christian, the cultural Christian refuses to put his sin to death. But rather what he does is he indulges his sin and he encourages others to do the same. Or they'll seek to redefine sin, to call good what God calls evil and to call evil what God calls good. And as our culture sinks deeper and deeper into moral depravity, there'll be more and more pressure on the, the cultural Christian to accept this depravity. And not only is there pressure from the world, but there's also pressure in our own sinful nature. We want to do the things. And if the culture tells us, okay, we're going to say, yes, let's go ahead and do it. But in our witness, we must confront this error. And as Christians, we are not bound 
this is an error as Christians that we are not bound to the moral law. We are saved to keep the law. That is the purpose. So that's the second error we need to, to battle against. The third error that we must confront is the error of, error of pluralism, or that there are many ways to God. We see this in verse 23. It says, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. See, Peter here is continuing this quote of Deuteronomy chapter 18 about the prophet that's to come after him, about Jesus. And this is not only a warning that the failure of God's people to obey him will result in their judgment. This is making a universal claim. It says that every soul, every soul who does not listen to him will be destroyed. A common thought in the ancient world was that these deities were local. Each people had their own God. We even see this hints of this in the reference of, to Yahweh as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Yahweh is not a local God. He is the one true and living God, God of all creation. Now, it's true he had a special relationship. He had a covenantal relationship with one people, with the nation of Israel. And through that nation, then would come the Messiah. But the Messiah was not just one for one nation. He was not just a Jewish Messiah. He was for all nations. And Jesus himself made it clear that salvation is in him alone. John 14, 6, a verse that every Christian should know. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter reiterates this same fact in the very next chapter in our study in Acts, in chapter 4, verse 12, where he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name than Jesus. My friends, this idea is extremely unpopular. This idea is extremely offensive. This idea seems un-American. It seems narrow-minded. And I want to be clear, I don't like this idea either. If it wasn't in Scripture, I wouldn't want this idea either. But this is what Scripture says. Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to salvation. This is one of our, our, our five souls that I just mentioned with the children. Salvation is by Christ alone. Solus Christos. And this view is not only rejected by our culture, it's also rejected by most Christians. I saw a survey that says only about one in three people who self-identify as Christians actually believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Most people believe that there are many ways. <clears throat> they believe Jesus is the way for me as a, as, as a Christian, but others have other ways. And I know a man who's an ordained Christian minister in another denomination, and he's involved in interfaith work. And he believes he has Jews and Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists, and he believes they all serve the same God, and they all can be saved through that same God. He uses the analogy, I'm sure you many have heard of it, that, that God is like a mountain, and there's many different paths up the mountain. And Christianity is one path, and, and Buddhism is another path, and Judaism is another path, and, and, and Hinduism, and, and all these are different paths. But my friends, this, contracts the, this contradicts the words of Jesus himself. And when we witness among cultural Christians, there will be much resistance to the exclusivity of Christ, but we still need to focus on God's words. And this leads us to the fourth error that we must confront. And the fourth error is the rejection of the necessity of evangelism and of conversion. And we see this in verse 25. Peter says you, and he's speaking now to the men of Israel worshiping in the temple. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
See, God's covenant with Abraham was to raise up for himself a people for himself. And through this people, through the Jewish people, ultimately would come the Messiah. And the Messiah would come not just to bless the Jewish people, but to bless all the people. All the families of the earth would be blessed through the Messiah. And the Messiah, this Christ, he came first to the Jews, to the people of the covenant, the people whom Peter's witnessing to, but this message was not to stop with them. It was to go out to the whole world. So this theme verse of, of Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8, it says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This theme is, is the mission given to the church to be Christ's witnesses, to, to be a witness to all people. It was the Jews in Jerusalem, but it's foreigners to the ends of the earth. And what this makes is Christianity is a, an evangelistic faith. It is a, a, a faith that we are to, to, to proclaim. It is, it is to spread. We are to seek converts. And the good news of the gospel is not just for us. It is for all people. All people need to hear it. It is to be shared with all people. It's not just to be hoarded. It's not just to be hoarded and enjoyed for ourselves. It is to be shared with all and it's very easy. It's very easy for churches to become inward focused. It's very easy for us to spend all our time, all our money, all our efforts on ourselves, on programs for our members, on, on nice facilities, while neglecting mission, while neglecting outreach to the lost. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no inward focus. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is to make disciples, which means to make followers of Christ which means to have us to grow in sanctification. What we are doing now, we are all growing in sanctification, becoming more like Christ. But the first part of making disciples is actually to make converts, to bring them into the kingdom, to make them new creations in Christ. So for us in our Jerusalem, here in the Bible Belt America, many of the converts that we will see are those who already think they are Christian, but are only cultural Christians. They are not born again. <clears throat> and this is why <clears throat> it's essential for our witness to include the absolute necessity of the new birth, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, every single person, every single person who has ever lived, other than Jesus himself, as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, we have been born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Completely impervious. Completely unable to respond to God. In this condition, we cannot obey God. We do not have that ability. In this condition, all we can do is sin. And as we continue to sin, we just get deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And Paul describes this situation perfectly in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses of Ephesians 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin and once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. Every single descendant of Adam and Eve, other than Jesus himself, by nature is a child of wrath which means by nature we are under God's discipline, under God's punishment, under God's wrath. This is every single person who has ever been born, every person you know. This is what we are by nature. And my friends, if this fact doesn't change, this wrath will be punished us on, upon death with an eternal separation from God. And, and, and 
What this means, eternal separation from God, is eternal separation from everything that is good. God is the source of everything that is good. So it is a separation from every good thing for eternity. That's what this means. <clears throat> now, many people who claim to be Christian, they reject this reality. We don't like this reality, but this is what the Bible teaches. It says the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And there's only one hope. There is only one hope. There is only one message that can escape that, and that is Jesus. The hope is Jesus. In him alone is salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are all by nature children of wrath. But thankfully, Paul does not stop there. He continues in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God, not the results of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. <clears throat> this is the gospel. This is the work of God. It's all of grace. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. And this is conversion. This is regeneration. This is being born again. This is becoming a new creation in Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I remember years ago being in a, a cultural Christian mainline church, and, and the minister there was a, a very kind and gentle lady and very accepting of all people. But there was one time that I saw her bitter. One time I saw her angry and resentful. And that's when she talked about, as she called it, quote, those born-again types talking about their salvation. And I remember being shocked at this forcefulness of her opinion. I was like, whoa, what's going on there? My friends, this is the reaction you're going to get. This is the reaction we get even from the nicest and gentlest as we witness to the necessity of the new birth to a cultural Christian. We will be tempted, in this case, to just keep our mouths shut. We'll be tempted to keep our mouths shut. We don't want this type of abuse. But my friends, Christ is the only hope for the lost. We do the lost no good if we keep our mouths shut. And God uses the foolishness of our witnessing, the foolishness of what I'm doing now of preaching, the gospel, he uses that as the instrument to impart saving grace on his elect and to bring them to himself. Now, the response we may hear from some when witnessing to a cultural Christian is, well, that's just your opinion. That's, or when you quote scripture, oh, that, that's just your interpretation of scripture. Or here's a great one, especially when confronting people about tolerating sins explicitly condemned in scripture. Oh, that, that was just the Old Testament. Oh, that was just Paul. Jesus never said anything about that. <clears throat> and what this attitude betrays is an erroneous view of Scripture, an erroneous view of hermeneutics. And what hermeneutics is, is, is a science of interpreting Scripture. I had one guy tell me, his, interpret, his, his hermeneutic is love. He uses love to interpret all Scripture. Now, he defines love basically the same way the non-Christian, unbelieving world would say, is love is really being nice. It's being non-judgmental. It's not telling a person they're wrong. Certainly not attempting to, to force your view on others, although he didn't see he was trying to force his hermeneutic of love on me. <clears throat> it's certainly not believing what the Bible actually says. If you actually believe what the Bible says, as, as, as taken in a plain sense, 
you're dismissed as an angry, hateful literalist. And I've had that happen to me. And this brings us to our fifth error that we must confront. And the fifth error is that there are many different and contradictory interpretations of Scripture. And I'm not talking about subtle differences on secondary and tertiary issues. Yes, that, that true believers may come to a different interpretation, maybe about end times or about the, the days of creation or about the proper modes of baptism. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the central message of Scripture. That is only one. Take a look at verse 24. It says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. And what we see from this verse is that all the prophets, that all the scripture, speak with one single voice. Scripture has one overall message, and that message is Christ. The prophets all spoke about God's plan of redemption, which is fulfilled in Christ. All scripture points to Christ. Jesus himself demonstrates this to his disciples on the road to Emmaus when he told them everything was fulfilled in him. Now, this doesn't mean that all scripture says the same thing. No, it doesn't. But what this does mean is that all scripture either points to Christ or is fulfilled in some aspect of Christ. So to understand the meaning of any one passage, what we need to use is the analogy of scripture. That means we use scripture to interpret scripture. We understand that scripture speaks with one voice and it doesn't contradict itself. So we look to the places where it clearly speaks about a subject and we use that to interpret places that are less clear. And there's a lot that I can go, and I can't go into it all in the sermon, such as how do we interpret the Old Testament laws and the command with respect to the Christian? What is our application for us as Christian? But these are things that we discuss Monday night in our theology class. So if this is interesting, if you want to understand hermeneutics and how we apply Old Testament laws, just come Monday night. These are things that we discuss. But this is important for us to understand, because when we're witnessing to believers and unbelievers, they're going to bring up, well, what about, you know, you, you eat shellfish. How come you could say that you can eat shellfish and you're keeping the, uh, you're keeping the laws? Are you using, you're wearing two different fabrics. So come to Monday night. We'll talk about how the answer to that. This is a clear answer to that. So let's now turn to application. <clears throat> what does all this mean? So as our witness to the cultural Christian in the Bible Belt in our Jerusalem, is it simply limited to exposing these errors? Is this all we have to offer? Absolutely not. See, opposing errors is important to break through the, the inoculated hearts that are completely ignorant of what it means to be born again, uh, to be a Bible-believing Christian. But the real power, the real power of this passage is found in the application. And the application we see in verses, 12, uh, verses uh, 19 to 21. See, this is our message that we have for the cultural Christian. This is... This is the message here, if, if there are any here who are cultural Bible-believing Christians, this is my message to you. So let's, let's look at, at verse 19. starts off, repent. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. My friends, this is the magnificence of the gospel. When our eyes are opened to our errors and to our sins, when God finally gets our attention, God has an answer. And the answer is repentance. That's what we do with our sin. We repent our sin. We acknowledge our sins. We agree with God's assessment that it is wicked, it is evil. And then we forsake it. We turn our back on it and we go back to Christ. We turn to Christ. And isn't this amazing? Isn't it amazing? It says when we do this, when we repent, it tells us that our sins will be blotted out. They will be expunged. They will be wiped away. They will be erased. They will be no more. See, repentance, I like to think of it, it's like having a spiritual reset button. Reset button. 
Now, I'm not a big video game player. In fact, the last time I really played video games was back in the 80s with Atari and, and in television. So you, you see how far back I am in video games. But one thing I do remember, <clears throat> I wasn't very good at it. That's why I didn't continue. And I remember no matter how bad, no matter how much you mess up the game, you can always hit that reset button. You hit that reset button and you're back, you're back to where you were. You're back to the beginning. Well, it's the same way. We have this spiritual reset button. No matter how bad we are, no matter what sin we've committed, when we repent, that sin is, is completely erased. It's completely forgotten. It will never be held against us because it has been fully punished. It has been fully punished in Christ on the cross. Therefore, it can never, it can never come back against us. Now, there will be, if we sin, there will be temporal consequences. There are. If you commit a crime, you will go to prison. But if you repent of that crime, you are spiritually free. That debt has been completely wiped out. It will never stand between you and God. It has been fully paid. And our application here is repentance. But it's not just repentance. Take a look at the immediate fruit of this repentance and the immediate uh, uh, the forgiveness that the grace receives. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> it says that time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed to you. See, not only does our repentance bring the objective reality of forgiveness of our sins, it also brings a subjective refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. And I can testify to this personally, and I'm sure many of you can. When you repent of that sin, you see that freedom, you see that joy, that lightness that comes upon you as you repent of your sin. In, in the uh, children's Sunday school class, we're reading through Pilgrim's Progress. And when Pilgrim, he, he has this burden of his sin, he comes to the cross, and the sin comes, or it rolls off, and he feels that lightness. That's what we do when we repent. We hold on to it. It, it, just, it just brings us down. But this is the power that we have. This is a supernatural peace that can be experienced only by a person who has been regenerated from above by the power of the Holy Spirit. But even this, even this, as great as it is, is not our ultimate hope as a Christian. This is not the ultimate hope reserved for the true Christian. Take a look at verse 21. It says, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. See, our hope is that Jesus is restoring and will completely restore all of creation. All things in creation will be made new, completely new. In other words, our hope is in the new heavens and the new earth. When each of us will get a new resurrected body that is completely free of sin, completely free of illness, we'll never be harmed, we'll never die, and we'll only get stronger and better for all eternity. That is our ultimate hope. And it's important for us to understand this. Because no matter what you go in, no matter how good a life you live, life in this fallen world is hard. <clears throat> and it's perfectly understandable. It's perfectly understandable why people are attracted to this theology of glory. Because we want to end the struggle. We, we hate waking up every day struggling. We hate this battle with our own sin, and we want it to end. We hate that our bodies are deteriorating, and our minds are being dulls, and this world is being decaying. But one day, this will all be a thing of the past. This is the hope that we have. And this is the promise and the hope for the true Christian. And this is really a reality that is so much better, so much better than the false hope of an unconverted cultural Christian. So my friends, our application is that we are faithful. We are faithful in both confronting errors and proclaiming this hope. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this hope that we have. And Lord, we know that each of us are, are, 
are tempted and in each of us are struggling. And Father, I pray that you will give us boldness to confront errors where we see them, but also compassion to present the true joy that we receive right now from knowing you and the eternal joy, the eternal amazing reality that we will have when we are with you in glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.